Hey there, Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. I have a number of things I want to talk about, and now we'll just get into it. So, yesterday, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on with Armenia and Azerbaijan. The new skirmish, uh, not the first time they've done it though, apparently... Uh, they got into their first fight in modern history back after the fall of the Soviet Union in the 1990s. And now there's a breakaway province called Nagorno-Karabakh. It's in Azerbaijan, but it aligns itself with Armenia as it is majority ethnic Armenians who govern that region. And now there was a skirmish that broke out uh I believe it was last night or the night before that, where you had drone strikes on both sides and shelling. It is unclear at this moment who started the fight, but the escalation is happening anyway. We have Nagorno, the people there, they are mobilizing all men over 18. They have a population of 146,000 total, so we don't know how exactly that breaks down less, you know, like male to female or uh, how many people specifically over 18, but I imagine it would be a couple tens of thousands at least. Armenia itself has mobilized two. It has a couple million people, so that'll be a significant fighting force, especially in this tight and confined region in the Caucasus Mountains. But, um, yeah, um, Azerbaijan has declared a state of emergency there, and... That's it for those two, for now. The hostilities are going on. The Russians are trying to mediate. And that brings me to the bigger issue, and that is, what do their neighbors do? What does Russia do? What does Turkey do? What does Iran do? Because Russia is allied with Armenia. They have troops in Armenia. And they have interests in Azerbaijani natural gas and oil. Turkey, being pro-Islamic, they are openly backing the the Azerbaijanis and they've sent in militants from Syria and Libya to go fight for Azerbaijan. Not that many of them, but still a significant detail. They've picked their side and it remains to be seen what the Iranians do. And I bring them up because they are one on the border with both Armenia and Azerbaijan, and two, they have a decent-sized Azeri minority in their country, in the northwest of their country, so right up along the border with Azerbaijan, so they could get involved and try to, you know, quell anything that might may happen between them and those minorities. We don't know yet. They've remained silent on the issue, and... The American ambassador to the region uh, is currently at a loss as to what we do. But um, the like I said, the Russians are trying to mediate a peace. It remains to be seen what they will do, like action-wise, should that fail. And um, so it's it's unfolding. It's unfolding. Definitely an interesting thing. A potential proxy war 
another proxy war for the Turks against another one of their neighbors as they try to expand their influence and potentially create a new Ottoman Empire. What do I mean by that? Well, Turkey has been very active lately. <clears throat> They've been active in the Eastern Mediterranean. They have troops in Syria. And they have backed the Libyan government, who is in the midst of a civil war. That civil war, the rebel leader, uh, General Hafdar, I do believe. And General Hafdar mainly controls like the east of the country, and the Libyan government is in control of the west. I might be getting that wrong. But there's a clear struggle going on over the fate of the nation. The Turks have backed the government. Greece, Egypt, and France have backed the Hafdar rebels. Now, that proxy war is happening over the eastern Mediterranean. Turkey wants to expand its exclusive economic zone and is attempting to partner with Libya and basically where their exclusive economic zones would reach out and touch one another in the eastern Mediterranean and block off other countries like Greece and Cyprus. Cyprus itself is another proxy war where the Turks invaded the island uh, a couple decades ago and now there's the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus and then there's Cyprus itself. Cyprus is friendly towards Greece and that is another point of contention that could spill out into conflict in another zone at which the Turks are trying to expand their influence because, well, if it's a Turkish Republic and the Turkish Republic gains control of the island, it's not too much of a stretch to say that they would be friendly to Turkey, if not just become a part of Turkey. Uh, Turkish Hawaii, so to speak. They... But, um, uh, they, oh yeah, they have troops in Syria. They, they had gotten to a, a bit of a, a bit of a fight with the American troops as America was pulling out. No shots were fired. No one was hurt. But it definitely caused friction between them and America. And it remains to be seen what exactly they will do now that they are in Syria. The prospect, though, of a new Ottoman Empire and which direction they go is important to everyone in the region because people don't exactly know which way they want to go. Everyone wants them to go in the opposite direction of themselves. But from the way I see it, it looks like they're going south. They're in Syria, which is to their south. They're in Cyprus, which is to their south. They're in the Eastern Mediterranean, which is in Turkey's south. They're backing Libya, which is to their southwest. And they are trying to drill for gas in the Eastern Mediterranean. So they haven't done too much north of that. Like They've gotten to skirmishes with Greece yeah, in the Eastern Mediterranean where their ships will get really, really close and then back off. And they're trying to assert their claims by drilling. But um, that drew the attention of France. France has sent in its navy to try to tip the scales against Turkey.
And now there's apparently negotiations going on between the Turks and Greece over the fate of the Eastern Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how it is now. But if you look at the map, and then you look at a map of the old Ottoman Empire, you can see Turkey has a real potential here should they expand out to even just the later stages of the Ottoman Empire when it was just just Turkey, the Levantine coast, so Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and Egypt. And the Hejaz region of Saudi Arabia, which is the mountainous part of the country in the west of Saudi Arabia, and that's right next to the Red Sea. If they expand out to there, if that, that if that's just as far as they go, they will have legitimate claims to basically all of the eastern Mediterranean, because that would, their coastline would encompass three sides out of it, especially if they own Cyprus. So then you could project power into the Eastern Mediterranean from there. If they controlled that, the Eastern Med would be theirs. The natural gas deposits would be there. And that's that's energy and potential money. If they control the Middle East, they would have the Tigris, the Euphrates as breadbaskets for the empire. If they controlled the Middle East, they would that would mean conquering part or all of Saudi Arabia and Israel, which would give them control of the holy cities, Mecca and Medina, making them the undisputed leader of the Islamic world. And if they were to control the entire coastline, the Levant, you know, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, if they were to control that region, that would involve controlling Israel, which means control of Jerusalem, which would make them the undisputed champion of Islam. So there's religion involved there and all the influence that comes with. There's the oil. There's all the oil of Saudi Arabia, Iraq, and Syria, and the United Arab Emirates if they were to go that far south. Even if they don't. There's still a lot of oil in this region, and that's on top of the oil in the eastern Mediterranean. <clears throat> Further west from there would be Egypt. Egypt is currently a major regional military power, so definitely the biggest roadblock that they would have outside of Israel and Arabia, and any outside intervention. But should they succeed, should they find a way to succeed, they would then control the breadbasket of the Nile, so more food production. They would have jurisdiction over the hundred million people living in Egypt and all of Egypt's oil. And, I'd argue more importantly, they would have control over the Suez Canal. Nineteen trillion dollars of trade goes through the Suez every year. If Turkey were to gain control of it and, say, put a tax, charge people who go through the straits, it's, it's the new spice trade. It's the new spice trade, especially when you factor in the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, the maritime route 
goes from China around India, around um, the Arabian Peninsula, up through the Red Sea, and to get to Europe, it goes through the Suez Canal, and trade from Europe to China goes the same way, through the Suez. That's income. $19 trillion of goods goes through there. That's $19 trillion of goods that you can slap a percentage-based tax on. It, it would make Turkey rich. It would make them perhaps one of the richest empires in modern history. On top of the oil revenue, Turkey is almost already self-sufficient in oil. If they were to take the energy in the eastern Mediterranean, that would probably be it for them. So if they were to take the oil of the Middle East on top of that, Arabia, Iraq, Syria, they'd become an oil exporting nation in an oil-hungry world. So that's even more potential revenues, and they would have such vast deposits that they would effectively dictate the market. They would control the market. Instead of OPEC, it would just be Turkey. If Turkey sets the price, or if they cut back in production to artificially raise the price, they could just reopen production and capitalize on the marked-up prices. Not even marked up, it would just be market forces, where scarcity is driving the price up, and then they just produce more. Or they just straight-up charge more. This would be the richest empire in modern history. Maybe behind the United States, maybe behind China, but it would it, it could very easily jump up to number three. Or who knows, depending on how much they charge, how depending on what they do. Cause they could they could go even farther just off the revenues from that trade and from the oil. And no one would be in a resist would be in a position to decline. If they build pipelines if the Russians try to build more pipelines through Turkey, that's more revenue they can they can charge money, cause all the Eastern Med would be theirs, so that's revenues for Turkey. That is the broader geopolitical picture I see for Turkey itself, and the fact that they are so heavily invested in the South leads me to believe that sooner or later they'll try to double down on one or more of the things they're doing. And eventually they'll go, oh, we can do this, this, and this. Oh, we can we can take the holy cities. Oh, we can take the holy city of uh, Judaism. Oh, we can, we can grab Mecca and Medina. Saudi Arabia can't stop us. We're Turkey. Oh, now we have control of Saudi Arabia. We have the oil. We can, we're rich now. Oh, we, we have a land, we have a border with Egypt. And speaking of Egypt, I mentioned earlier that they are Turkey's main opposition in this region. But Turkey is backing the Libyan government in Libya's civil war. If the Libyan government wins, Turkey could probably, they could probably use their leverage in having backed the government and aided it to win to force Libya into some type of strategic alliance. And maybe not even force, maybe they would be more than willing to do so. Because Turkey helped them maintain power. So what then? Then you would have Turkey being able to deploy their troops in Libya 
hard up on the Egyptian border, the Libyan-Egyptian border. So a land route for the Turks to go after Egypt, rather than if they were to push south through Syria, Lebanon, and Israel, they would eventually run into the, the Suez Canal. And that's, an, that's a water crossing, which the Egyptians could stop them at very easily. But if they go through Libya, it's wide open desert until you get to the Nile. And there's plenty of bridges to go across the Nile with, especially closer towards the Delta. <clears throat> you have lots of major cities up here, especially Cairo. Cairo in particular would be the best river crossing. And once you take that, you just go south. Once you secure the Suez Canal, it's, it's yours. And then they go south. Now, they would then run into the same problem with Ethiopia that Egypt has, which is that Ethiopia wants to build a dam, the Renaissance Dam, that would basically dry up the Nile. The, the, the non-Delta region would lose a lot of water and a lot of the farmland. It's already really thin when you look at it on a map. In the Delta, they say that that upriver area in Egypt would shrink by 30%. And the delta itself would shrink by 25%. So Egypt would then have trouble with Ethiopia. But who knows, they could bomb the dam later. <laughs> I mean, if they're an empire at that point, who's going to stop them? It's certainly not Ethiopia. And they don't even need to invade Ethiopia. They would just bomb the dam. And the, rev the reservoirs overflow. And boom, the Nile's back. And that's for a later day. That is the grand geopolitical picture I see for Turkey. A resurrection of not just the Ottoman Empire, but the strategic position of the Ottoman Empire. The spice trade. Except instead of spices, it's, it's oil and food. <clears throat> oil and food. And a little bit of natural gas mixed in. And maybe, just maybe, Chinese manufactured goods going through the, the Suez Canal. So there's your spices right there. And if the Europeans want access to the Chinese market, it's easier to go by water than by land, even if the Turks place a massive tax on it. It's the, it's the Silk Road. The String of Pearls. What would that would do for China? Who knows? But this is Turkey. This is what Turkey is looking at here. And that's Turkey. I just said that. So what else do we have here? We just talked about... I would mentioned China a couple seconds ago. China. Uh, something interesting going on with China is that they are currently picking fights with all of their neighbors. Every single one. I, I'm, I'm not joking. Every single one. They have overlapping... They've overlapping claims with Japan in the East China Sea. And overlapping claims with South Korea in the East China Sea. They are disputing the border region between them and North Korea. So there's that. They've laid claims passively aggressively, passive aggressively, to the Vladivostok region of Russia. So that, that pissed the Russians off. They banned Mongolian 
from the Inner Mongolia region of China, which has pissed off Mongolia, if there was ever a way to piss them off. There. Mongolia is literally in the middle of nowhere with three million people. But China found a way. <laughs> they are picking a fight with Tajikistan using their debt trap diplomacy. They are now trying to lay claim on 40% of the country. They are <clears throat> they are trying to lay claim to territories in Kyrgyzstan and Taj and well, I mentioned Tajikistan, but I meant to say Kazakhstan. They there's the Kashmir region dispute between them, India, and Pakistan and Afghanistan to a little bit. They are actively trying to take over pieces of Nepal. Nepal is too focused on India to look at them. They are trying to exert influence over Bhutan. And Bhutan doesn't like that. They have laid claims on the Arunachal Pradesh region in India, which is like really far east, northern... Uh, how do I say this? Northeast piece of India that is snuggled up against China. Yeah, that part. The one between the Tibet region of China and Burma. Yeah, there we go. Right next to the Himalayas. They have soured their relations with Burma itself. The results of that remain to be seen. They are laying claims to territory in Laos. They pissed off literally everybody in the South China Sea. So that's Vietnam, Taiwan, the Philippines, Brunei. Uh, Malaysia, Singapore, and Indonesia. So, that is uh, that's all their that's all of their neighbors. Every single one they have managed to pick a fight with. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think it's because there isn't going to be a cold war between the U.S. and China. Now that. Deserves some a little bit of explanation. And I say that because if you actually look at the direction the Americans and the Chinese are going, the Americans in particular, the Americans are done. The Americans are done. They're leaving. Not just Asia. They're leaving the Middle East. They're leaving Europe. They're retrenching. But retrenchment for America usually is a slippery slope to isolationism. I am pro-isolationism. I'm in America. I would very much like to uh, ignore the rest of the world. <laughs> but uh, America's troops are at the lowest deployment levels that they've been since... I can't remember whether it was the 1920s or the Great Depression. But America's presence around the world is fading. Now, many pundits, experts, people who dabble in the topic of foreign affairs, particularly American foreign affairs in places around the world, they will say that this is a tragedy, which you can argue that it is. They'll say that it's a mistake, which you can also make that argument. They'll say that it's the end of the American empire. There wasn't really an American empire to begin with. And they'll say that it plays right into China's hands and that the Trump administration is just so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but what a lot of them miss is that American retrenchment and this new phase of isolationism in America plays into America's hands. It's incredible how so many people refuse, like, I don't know if they refuse or just can't see how America's actions could potentially benefit the Americans. People mainly focus on China with regards to America's actions, and I don't really understand that, because it's like, America does things for America. America is not playing a foreign policy game, it's playing a domestic policy game. So, they're pulling back. And the Chinese have caught, they've, they've caught on. They're retooling their propaganda machine away from the Americans. They're picking fights with every single one of their neighbors because no one country can replace America as your boogeyman. So instead, oh, look at that. Everybody's our enemy. I guess we are surrounded by enemies and we need to band together as Chinese and give us more power. That is the situation the Chinese are putting themselves in, whether or not they actually want worse relations with their neighbors. But they've replaced, they're replacing the American boogeyman from their propaganda and replacing it with a vast coalition of all of their neighbors. They have, I believe, the most borders with the most number of countries in the world. And I, I think it'll be effective. I think it'll be effective. It's the only option they have, because uh, no, nobody outside of that region is able to touch them, really. The European empires are gone for now. So, it's just your neighbors. I mentioned the... So, China has... The, those pundits and experts and people who talk on the thing, they talk about China and how they've had this explosion of wealth and the bottom 50% have had the greatest sustained increase in their quality of life over the past couple decades and how America stagnated. I was, I listened to Kishore Mabubani and that's the premise of his argument is that America shouldn't go inward but rather should embrace international trade the problem with that is international trade is how america got to this point where the american jobs kept going overseas mainly to china and the chinese have seen they've seen the benefits of this they have the biggest manufacturing base in the world right now the americans the bottom 50% stagnated for the past 20 30 years and when you look at manufacturing, when you look at it starting with manufacturing, it makes sense why that is. Why it is that we have a wealth gap that gets bigger instead of smaller. It's because the rich people who own factories and produce things, they're invested in China. China gets the investment because it's not just the factory. It's not just manufacturing it's the construction. You have to build the factory. It's labor. People have to work there. <clears throat> Those people then go out and buy things. They fuel an economy. It's You need infrastructure going to 
the factory. So you the construction again, you build roads and electrical wires. Now you need electricity. So more people at the power plant get employed. More and more people have to mine or extract the resources to create more energy. So that's more and more investment. And you can see where that goes. It creates wealth for the working man. It creates a way up by working. So when you lose manufacturing, you lose that economic mobility. You lose that. And once you lose that, it becomes harder then to keep that wealth gap from expanding. It becomes harder then to keep the standard and quality of life for the working class going up. It, it, makes, it makes it harder to keep going up when you don't have that same level and depth of investment from the ne the necessary things required for a manufacturing base. Again, the infrastructure, construction, the energy. And then there's the subsidiaries that make money off of the success of the manufacturing. So maybe clothes industries, maybe hotels, and food, food industries. When you have uh, a McDonald's next to a factory, guess who the number one customer is going to be? Factory workers on their way to and from work. That's a... So you can see how that helps to play into the rise of an economy. And that's before you factor in the prerequisites necessary for a manufacturing base, which is parts manufacturing. Do you have the parts? So, like machine tools, do you have the nuts, the bolts, do you have the screws? Do you have the specific tools for this specific task? Do you have the wedges? Do you have the axles? You, you need those. People have to make those. People get jobs making those. So when you lose manufacturing, not only do you lose the jobs associated with the manufacturing, you lose the prerequisite industries because they have no reason to be there anymore. They go away. You lose the industries that depend on the success of manufacturing. They go away because there's no manufacturing. So now you have stagnation. You have the gig economy trying to fill the gap. You have a poor labor market that incentivizes people to sell their labor for less. So wages stagnate and go down. And when you look at it from the... When you start with manufacturing and then look at the broader picture, you can see why things are the way they are and why I would argue Kishore and many who make some of the similar arguments are wrong because America is not playing a foreign policy game. It's a domestic policy. America, if it is to solve many of its woes, needs its manufacturing back. And because a lot of those jobs are going to have to come from China, China is on, at the top of the list. The trade war isn't about getting a deal. It's about forcefully decoupling the U.S. economy from China. You make it expensive. You make it hard to go to China and then sell to America. And the other side of that 
is you try to make it easier to start up business in America. That's what opportunity zones are. So you can see that the Americans are going through this period of reindustrialization. The Americans do not need trade if they have a manufacturing base. That's the caveat. They don't need trade so long as they have a manufacturing base. They can manufacture the things that they import if they have a base, but they don't. That's the problem. That's how Donald Trump got elected. People could feel the impact. So what you have here is America breaking away, not just, you know, involvement and interventionism, but breaking away economically. Whereas it's trying to resource its industrial base. Once that happens, America-China relations will either go to normal or they'll go to their historic norm, which is, which for America means ignoring that the Chinese exist. <laughs> That's America's historic norm for a lot of countries. Just <clears throat> blatant isolationist ignorant ignorance of the existence, the very existence of other countries. I don't fear a war between America and China because that's the direction America's heading in. Excuse me. And so what does that mean? It means that the door is open for regional powers like Turkey, China, Russia to shape their region the way they want. Now, to varying degrees based on how fast the Americans pull out of their specific region. But I laid out what the Turks can do. I laid out what going back to an Ottoman Empire, just the borders of an empire, would mean for Turkey. And it's great for Turkey. I went over China. Their, I haven't gone over their Belt and Road Initiative, which is them trying to create access to markets. Because they have an aging population. So what they want is access to young and growing markets so that they can ship their exports to them and continue to exist as a country. Because you can argue that they aren't export-driven now. 25% of their GDP is pure exports. And a lot of that require is dependent on around 10 to 14% of their GDP, which is imports, usually raw materials like iron ore and oil because they need oil they could replace the oil with coal for energy but you can't do that for things that require oil now what the chinese are trying to do is they're trying to spearhead the self-driving cars and electric cars they have a billion and a half people people driving you have accidents. If the car drives itself, you have a lot less accidents. If the car is then electric powered, then you don't need necessarily need oil as much as you need energy. And you can create energy with coal. China has lots of coal. So uh, that is one thing I see the Chinese doing to try to circumnavigate a potential changing times where oil is no longer easy to access. Especially when you factor in that their temp they, most of it comes by sea. And they are trying to build a navy. They're trying to 
put friendly ports along the South China Sea, in the Bay of Bengal, in the Indian Sea, and along the Arabian Sea with Pakistan, Sri Lanka, and Djibouti. But, excuse me, they likely won't be able to combat a naval power that focuses solely on a specific region. They can defend their coasts. They might be able to take Taiwan, and that would be great for their geopolitical situation. But they probably won't be able to go much farther in terms of long-term military projection capability. But it remains to be seen whether or not they'll need that long-term, long-range military projection capability. So long as they can maintain self-sufficiency in energy, which they're building more coal power plants as we speak, and nuclear. So the more things they can make go from require being gas guzzlers to electric, the better. Because then you can just rely on domestic energy. And for what oil they do need, that's where I think Belt and Road is going to come in. Because if they have the road going to Iran, they can have Iranian oil. If they make it go even farther, you can tap Middle Eastern oil straight from the source. You can drink straight from the tap. Now you have to worry about the railroad getting sabotaged, but hey. It's better than hoping and praying no one raids your convoys at sea, especially if the Americans aren't there to force everybody to play nice. State-sponsored piracy is likely going to make a return, especially as countries see that, um, well, they have rising population, they are industrializing and urbanizing, and they need more and more energy And hey, it's unguarded. We're going to take it. The Somalian pirates will not be the only ones in the future. It'll be actual governments this time. But uh, that's the position of China and what they're looking forward to in their future. Maybe, maybe they'll go after Mongolia. Who knows? But um, Japan will be one of their greatest enemies in the region. Japan... And India, who have signed a strategic pact. And instead of China boxing in India, where China has a de facto alliance with Pakistan, where they have friendly enough relations with Burma, again, the fallout of the cooling of relations has yet to be seen, whether or not it will actually pan out. They, The Chinese have ports in Sri Lanka, They've picking fights with India in the Himalayas. They're pushing into Nepal. And Chinese have put in Bangladesh, too, I believe. They've been trying to box India in. But now the Indians have signed a pact with Japan, and they've sent destroyers into the South China Sea. So now, both India and China have boxed in one another because now India is a part of the broader uh, anti-China coalition of the South China Sea, which includes Japan and Taiwan and the Philippines and Brunei and Malaysia, Singapore and Vietnam and Indonesia. China cannot fight all of them at once. 
especially if it's a land and sea war. India cannot fight all of its neighbors at once. What you have here is a grand geopolitical 4D chess move. The Indians have gone from being surrounded to a counter surround. A counter encirclement, so to speak. So, that's the real Cold War that we should be looking at, not China and America, because the Americans are going home. The Americans have found their exit strategy. They just sell weapons to local powers that they like and leave. And if I look over here to my notes, they've given Israel uh, two combat operational squadrons. So that's anywhere from 24 to 48 F-35s. Because we're looking at F-35s here. They've given the UK 17 F-35s. These are carrier-based F-35s for the UK's um, supercarriers. The Queen Elizabeth class, I think it's called. They have, the UK has received 17 out of the planned total of 138 F-35s that they plan to acquire. And Japan... Japan has, not planned, has 147 F-35s. They are the second largest holder of F-35s after the Americans who invented the F-35. Japan also has carriers. Their helicopter carriers are designed to be able to switch to jet fighter carriers very easily. And they're already reconfiguring one of them for that purpose. That's a lot. But if you look at where these countries who have received the F-35s are, and the UAE has been added to the deal, I think they've, I think they're getting like 30 F-35s. I'm not entirely sure. The UAE, who the Americans got to sign an agreement with Israel to recognize Israel, and I believe Qatar, Qatar was a part of that deal as well. They, too, have received F-35s. So, if you look at where these countries are, that's Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Where are they? they in, they're in the Middle East. Who is America's uh, main rival slash boogeyman in the Middle East? It's Iran. Who are both of these countries opposed to? Iran. Hmm. Then you have the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom is a naval power in Europe. Who is America's main rival slash boogeyman in Europe? Russia. What does what what does the U the United Kingdom usually do when faced with potential European hegemons on the continent? They fight them. Napoleon, Hitler, Napoleon, Hitler, Imperial Germany, uh, Spain, the Ottomans. Uh, not so much with the Ottomans. But they even fought the Russians, too, with the Crimean War. And they had a cold war with the Russians with the Great Game when in Africa, Africa, Afghanistan. The Brits have a long history of challenging the authority of hegemons on the continent of Europe. And now they're being armed by the Americans with F-35s. Who is the closest to being a continental hegemon? Russia. So that's Europe, that's the Middle East. Japan has 147 F-35s. 
who is America's boogeyman in the region? It, China, potentially North Korea. We do. It's looking less and less like North Korea now, but China's still there. Japan and China have a long history of shaky relations with each other. So, when we're not even going to bring up the second or first Sino-Japanese war where the Japanese invaded China. The Japanese are a naval power. China's biggest weakness is its navy. Its lack of naval prowess and its lack of ability to control the sea lanes going to China. They're investing in anti-ship missiles and destroyers armed with anti-ship missiles to basically kill navies for the cheap. But it's still a weakness for them. Especially if the enemy navy can operate outside of your range like the Japanese can. So you have that. And what you have then is regional balances of power everywhere the Americans are trying to get out of. The Japanese, again, signed a 10-year strategic pact with India, and the Japanese are involved in the South and East China Seas. That's a very broad coalition of countries who are strategically opposed to the Chinese, even though many of them are economically uh, dependent on China. Not so much for India, but the, it's a strategic pact, not it's a strategic pact, not an economic alliance. So that's China dealt with. Then you have the Middle East, where it's Israel and the United Arab Emirates. They are together with the Arabian Shield, which is Arabia and Oman, I do believe, and Kuwait. I think that's the Arabian Shield. The Peninsula Shield, that's the name of it, the Peninsula Shield. So that's three de facto allies as well uh, against Iran. And even though the Sunni Muslims of Kuwait, <coughs> Arabia, and the UAE, and Oman don't like Israel, they despise the Shia Muslims of Iran more. So they, they they see it as fighting the greater evil. That's the Middle East. And then the United Kingdom can handle itself against a European hegemon. And that's Europe. The Americans have found the exit strategy. The mythical exit strategy that plagued the minds of the thinkers back in the 90s and 2010s. Well, not the 2010s, but the early 2000s. We found it. We found it, we're implementing it, we're implementing it everywhere. Because the Americans are going home. And uh, I mentioned that that leaves open the door for regional powers to shape their region. I mentioned Turkey. I brought up China. China is probably going to try to create some type of new, um, uh, new system of tribute. Yeah, a new tributary system. So, and they can use the leverage of being the largest trading partner with all those countries in their immediate neighborhoods to force them into a treaty, especially the ones who've fallen into the debt trap. They use the debt trap to 
say, oh, oh, you can't pay your debt. Well, you lease us this port for 99 years. That's how they built the String of Pearls. Because they would use the money to build the port. The countries that got the loans from China, they'd use the money, build a port. And then the Chinese go, oh, it's okay that you can't pay back the loan. We'll just take the port. It's ours now. So it's not too much of a stretch to say that they can use debt trap diplomacy to, instead of taking a port from a country, they could force it into a trip to become a tributary state to the Chinese. And boom, you have the Chinese Empire. Xi Jinping has already rewritten the constitution so that he doesn't he doesn't have to abide by term limits. <clears throat> so he's your new emperor now. That's the short-term slash long-term fate of Asia, so long as nothing goes wrong for the Chinese. But now, we take a look at Russia. What can Russia do? Well, recently, they conducted military drills in the Caucasus. And they did it not by themselves, but they did it with a whole host of other countries. They did it. They had 80,000 servicemen total. I believe it was about 12,000 of their own. No, 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 it was 80,000. 80,000 servicemen. It took place on land and at sea in the Black and Caspian Seas. The Iranian naval forces in the Caspian were invited. And it involved uh, around 1,000 servicemen who were a part of the drills from, <clears throat> excuse me, Armenia, Belarus, China, Burma, Pakistan. India was supposed to come, but they declined uh, at the last minute, probably due to uh, tensions with two of the aforementioned countries, you know, China and Pakistan, namely China, but uh, and representatives from Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Indonesia, Iran, and Sri Lanka came as observers. Now, there was 250 tanks, 450 uh, infantry fighting vehicles, and personnel, armored personnel carriers. There were 200 artillery and multiple rocket launch systems. It was really big. Really, really big. And it's important because of who the Russians have invited to participate because Armenia, Belarus, China, and Pakistan participated in in the um, in the exercise itself. Iran, the their navy vessels joined in as well in the Caspian Sea. So when you look at the map, when you look at a map, you have Russia. <laughs> Russia didn't used to look like this. Look up a map of the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union. You can see those were the borders the Russians used to have. But now they're smaller, but they have a longer border. The Russians have taken steps to secure more territory beyond their contemporary borders. Very slowly and very cautiously strategically they they invaded georgia in i believe it was 2008 2008 
and they invaded Crimea. And Crimea is now considered to be a part of Russia. They seized the Crimea and Georgia. They have they are occupying Georgia. They have uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia, who are rebel regions in Georgia. The Russians are there. Uh, Georgia can't really do anything about it. They have a are the Armenians are part of their collective security treaty organization, the CSTO. Armenia. Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Belarus are all a part of that alliance structure. The Russians have troops in all of them. The Russians are trying to push a union state between them and Belarus, and they are backing separatist rebels in eastern Ukraine. So... When you look at that, when you look at it that way, and the fact that the Belarusians um, are on and off on board with the Union state, diplomacy could probably bring Belarus into direct control from Moscow. You have separatists in Ukraine fighting a civil war in Ukraine. If the separatists win, not by separating, but rather with the assistance of Russian equipment, push east across the Ukraine and take the whole country for themselves and then separate and then secede to Russia that would hand all the Ukraine over to Russia all of it that's that that would be a massive land grab and would give a lot of strategic depth to Russia and would shore, shore up almost all of their black sea holdings their former black sea holdings from there, oh, they would also get the food production of the Ukraine and the coal production and the industrial base of the Ukraine. From there, Georgia is uh, potentially could be snatched up overnight. Armenia, if it were sufficiently threatened, like it is now, could be compelled for direct Russian occupation or integration with Russia. And from there, the Russians would just have to strong-arm our Azerbaijan. But that would provoke their neighbors. Which makes it interesting when they have this military drill where they invite Iran and Pakistan and China and I believe Afghanistan? <coughs> something, something about Afghanistan. The Afghans were there. I believe, probably to a limited capacity, but uh, the Afghans, and they are trying to shore up relations with Turkey by basically keeping the Turks either distracted or giving the Turks what they want. So what then? What then? Well, that is all the lands beyond the Russian periphery. So if the Russians were to expand, they already have friendly relations with the countries that would then border them should they push out and take the old borders of the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union, Turkey, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, China, if Russia were to push south and directly integrate Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, or Tajikistan, or invade Uzbekistan or Turkmenistan, or Azerbaijan and Armenia.
they already have positive relations, and I believe if they had good enough relations, the intervention would be limited, and that's all the Russians could ask for. And from there, that would only leave Moldova and the Baltic countries outside of their sphere of influence. And from there, I do believe uh, Russian separatist rebels would do the rest of the work. And the Russians would slowly, piece by piece, put themselves back together. And uh, I do believe that's all I have for today. That was the events of last week. And uh, I think I did a pretty good job of piecing together all my thoughts. Uh, Good first episode. Trying to start something new over here on Anchor. And uh, I've been thinking about these things for a really long time. Not not specifically what I talked about, but I've been dabbling in uh, my thoughts on geopolitics. Even before I knew what geopolitics was called, I'm just thinking of how to convey my thoughts on specific topics, especially the ones that interest me. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. Things are heating up. Things are really heating up. Who knows where this goes, especially the Azerbaijan and Armenia conflict. Because... We we don't know what the other players will do when they feel they have no options. Will, will the Russians invade? Will Turkey actually will Turkey invade Armenia? Will the Iranians get involved? Will France show up to ruin Turkey's party again? Who knows? <clears throat> who who knows? What we do know is that the world is changing, folks, and we are going to have fun watching it together. So till we meet next time, servus. This has been This Week in Geopolitics with your host, Haishan Wade. See you next week.